Well, good morning. Michael, thanks for taking me back to Alabama today. <laughs> Foot stomping, big fiddle, little fiddle, you had it all. Well, good morning and welcome back to the Master's College. Uh, we do hope you had a refreshing and an impactful spring break. Um, I know many of you got away, some of you were here. Hope you made good memories connected with family and friends. We're glad to have you back, though. We missed you. It wasn't the same, for sure. And we're just glad you're here this week, uh, back again to reconnect. And part of what we want to do this week, I, as your campus pastor, and Joe Keller as your student life vice president, we want to uh, reconnect you, <coughs> to kind of transition you back from wherever you've been, whether you've been in Missouri playing basketball or you've been traveling with friends and family, we want to connect you back to the focal point of what matters the most, your preparation and equipping to become what God has made and created you to be, and then secondly, to connect you what, for what this week is. I've been a pastor uh, enough years to know that, and it's even true of me, you can come to special seasons in the life of the church and in the record of Christian history and you can get on it so fast, you hardly appreciate it. And part of what Joe and I want to do this week is to make sure you're ready to celebrate the most significant happenings in all of history. The king of everything, we will celebrate Friday as the giver of his life for our life. We will celebrate on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the validating proof that he was who he said he was, and he could do what he says he could do. Carry our sin and deliver us from its consequence. This is Passion Week. This is the remembrance of the death of the Son of God, the Son of Man, for our sin. A great victory and a great gift. And Joe and Harry don't want you to miss it. So I'd like to encourage you, even this morning, to begin to orient yourself daily and even now, to calibrate, to align, to spend time to reflect and to meditate. It would be inappropriate for something so mammoth to go unnoticed in the ways that it deserves honor and attention. And if you agree with that, would you say amen? All right, join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. This event, which we're about to read, probably happened on a Monday. Centuries ago, one of the most significant events in all of history occurred. We consider it to be significant because this is one of the four, this is actually one of the two times in terms of the life of Christ that all four Gospels reflect an incident. The feeding of the 5,000 is recorded by all four Gospel evangelists. And the entrance into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphant entry, Palm Monday, not Palm Sunday, because it was six days before Passover. He was at the house of 
Lazarus in Bethany. The next day, he entertained guests. Sunday, Monday, he came to Jerusalem. This is Palm Monday, not Palm Sunday. And it is recorded by all four gospel evangelists because it has massive significance. If you don't get this, you won't get the rest of this week. It was this week that Jesus Christ is undeniably, irrefutably, you can't argue this, is going to communicate who he is and what kind of king he is offering himself to be. This is, I believe, Jesus' validating, affirming affirmation. Receive me. That's an invitation. Here's the affirmation. Receive me for the kind of king that I am, not the kind of king that you want me to be. Receive me, an invitation. It's a formal and real invitation. After many words and many validating acts, Jesus comes to town in an entourage unmatched. And the presentation, which is real and historical, is designed to call people to consider who he is and to accept him for who he is. Receive me for who I am, not for who you want me to be. Everything else that happens after this, during Passion Week, is because of that. Let's read the text together. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Mark's record, probably Peter sharing it with Mark. And as they approached, that's referring to the disciples and Jesus and the multitude that is coming with him from Jericho. They're ascending from Jericho blind have been healed in Jericho, Zacchaeus has come to know the Lord, the crowds have gathered, it's Passover, and as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage, which means house of unripe figs, some believe a type of unprepared and unripe Israel, at Bethphage and Bethany, which was the home of Lazarus near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he, the owner, will send it back here. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The triumphant entry. This is God's word. This is an inspired historical record 
of a mammoth event. And I pray that God will use it today to align your thinking in preparation for this week's celebration. This is the beginning of the end. This is the last week of the life of the Son of God. Everything that happens is weighted in light of that fact. Every event, every word, every action is marked with meaning and none of them more than this. This is the opening act of a series of sovereign installments designed to fulfill God's eternal purpose in sending his only begotten son. Jesus has been declaring, revealing, demonstrating who he is. His works have revealed it. His words have declared it. Even his enemies are concerned about it. He is the promised one, he says. He is the son of man, the second Adam, the promised son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the son of David, the Messiah. It is undeniable. He is liberated from demons. He has healed the sick. He has healed the leper. He has healed the lame. He has fed thousands. He has walked on water. He has calmed wind and water. He has healed the unhealable and given life to the dead. He has declared it. He has shown it. Before Abraham, I am. It is undeniable, and now he means it to be unhideable. Listen, the people knew he wasn't any ordinary man. They knew from the times they had witnessed those bombastic miracles, there hasn't any, been anybody who talks like this. There's never been anybody who could do things like this. This is a take-your-breath-away presence, God in the flesh. I mean, you could rehearse it. You could walk through the Gospel of Mark, the preceding chapters, and you would see and hear a drumbeat of response. People, a witness to what he has done, saying when he had relieved a man of an unclean spirit, they were all amazed. Ekpleso, they were blown away. They were all astounded. They were stunned. And they said words like this, what is this? It's a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Nobody could control unclean spirits, but he did. Nobody spoke like he had. I remember the first time a woman I was counseling communicated an unrivaled hatred for the things that I was saying and a hatred toward me. She took on a look and a countenance was, which was otherworldly. We were in my office. We were, I was trying to coach her out of a dysfunctional pattern of behavior. And she literally jumped from her chair onto my desk. She looked at me and said, I will kill you. Now, that would be a bit unnerving. Wouldn't you agree? I went to seminary, and I never had one class on what to do now. <laughs> but somewhere, somehow, I knew to say this. In the name of Jesus, sit down. You know what she did? 
like a light switch off my desk, back in her chair, eyes not so dark and angry, all at the name of the one who not only calms winds and waves, but even the demons of darkness obey him. And when you see that, which I have seen more than once, not always on my desk, you become very quickly aware of the fact that Jesus is no ordinary man. He is no ordinary man. I mean, the record of the scriptures go on to say in Mark 2, the paralyzed paralytic being lay, r- lowered through the roof, cut by his buddies, and Jesus takes this guy who's never walked and paralyzed from birth, and he rises, and immediately he takes up his pallet in the sight of everybody, and he walks, and the Bible says, and they were blown away. They were all amazed and they were glorifying God. We've never seen anything like this. And so it goes. On and on. Undeniable evidence. Sufficient evidence. This is no ordinary man. The wind and the waves, they do respond when he says, peace be still. The Bible records in Mark 4.41, it got perfectly calm went from waves washing over the boat, winds blowing, fear rising. What kind of man is this? Then the little girl who, the official's daughter who's dead, and Jesus and three of the disciples come into the inner place, and they resurrect that little girl from the dead. And the Bible says even those closest to Jesus were blown away. This is no ordinary man. The deaf hear, Mark 7. The dumb speak. The crowd saw everywhere and everything that he did, and this was their conclusion. He has done all things well. He blows us away. Matthew echoes. Many were brought to him, demon-possessed, blind and dumb, he healed them so that the dumb man spoke and saw and all the multitudes were amazed and they began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? The multitudes marveled as they saw, blown away is the word, as they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the God of Israel. And the coup de grace, the thing that happens that you don't see in Mark, in John's gospel record of this event, the real trigger for the triumphant entry is not the accumulation of all of those marvelous, I can't believe he can do this work. But the coup de grace was a dead man four days in the grave whose stench was obvious that when the stone was rolled away and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, A dead man came alive in his grave clothes. And people were coming in great numbers from Jerusalem, which was Passover season. A million people will gather at Jerusalem during Passover. 250,000 lambs would be slain that Passover Friday. And they were coming to Bethany 
to see this, I can't believe he can do this miracle worker. I want to see for myself, can he raise the dead? I want to see Lazarus. I want to see him. I want to know what kind of man he is. So the multitudes are coming from Jericho with him, and the multitudes are coming out from Jerusalem to see him. And Jesus, who has been saying, I give you stern and strict orders. Don't tell anybody. What's happened to you today, don't go tell anybody. When Peter confessed Christ as the anointed Son of God, strict orders were given. Don't tell anybody what you've heard or seen. And Jesus goes from a don't tell anybody to I now want to show everybody. Remember the leader said, hey, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, he could have said, I've been showing you plainly. I've been using plain words. But now he's going to demonstrate by a living parable. This is exactly who I am. And this is exactly the kind of king that I am presenting myself to be. I am the anointed, promised son of David. I am the inheritor of the Davidic throne. I am the fulfillment of 500 or 700 year old prophecies made to the king of Israel that on your throne will be your seed and he will rule forever and ever. I am that man. And it's this week, it's this Monday, that all of everything comes together in a climactic moment where he says, now it's time. Because the schedule Jesus is on is not the result of some tactical error that gets him caught up and crucified. Every event that happens this week is the product of a sovereign God purposing this time this place for this reason. And the reason I wanted to preach this to you today is because the king you will worship this week, the savior you will remember this week, presents himself as he is. And the danger we have is wanting to receive him for who we want him to be. You see, the tragedy of this event is Jesus was really offering. He was really saying, receive me as your king. He is proving it by fulfilling prophecies centuries old. And they will celebrate, but they will miss the message because they miss the man. And what can happen to us is we can create a king and a savior of our own defining. We want a king defined and described for who we want him to be, who we need him to be, to be a life fixer, a save my world and make it better changer. And what I'd like to say to you today as we launch this Passion Week, Jesus doesn't change his identity, his rule, his royal kingship for anybody he says, you receive me for who I am, 
not for who you want me to be. You want me to be what you want me to be, and I'm not that. You lose everything. That's this story. This is not just a triumphal entry. This is a tragic entry. Because the same people who cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and do the palm branch thing and throw the coats on the ground and give glorious and great worship, they're the same people who just a few days later on Friday are going to say, crucify him. Crucify him. We have no kingdom, no, no ruler but Caesar. Give us Barabbas. You know, because this guy, this guy isn't who we want him to be. We reject him. And God rejects them. So let me unpack this quickly in the few minutes that we have. And let me break this down in this way. Here's a simple outline. A real presentation by Jesus of who he is, the kind of king that he's offering. You have a real presentation. You have a super superficial reaction. You have a sad expression and a catastrophic or tragic conclusion. Those are the four steps we're going to take today. Number one, a real presentation. Scene one of the final act, a formal presentation and a final invitation. Number one, who is Jesus presenting himself to be? And I don't want to skip over these initial verses that describe the preparations because the preparations reveal the kind of royal king he is. If this is a real presentation of the kind of king that Jesus is, what do the preparations reveal? What kind of king is God presenting? What kind of king are we offered and who are we receiving? Number one, he presents himself as a sovereign king. A ruler over everything and everyone king. I see that and I think it's obvious with the flavor of the words of the preparation. Listen to the authority. He sent two of his disciples. Present active imperative verse 2, go. And literally it's go now. It's not like go optional. It's go right now. And the reason that's important is because Luke 951 says there came a season Jesus had predicted I'm going to three times he's told the group of disciples four times the inner circle I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to suffer I'm going to die he kept avoiding Jerusalem he kept avoiding the the crowd lest the issue be forced sooner than it should have been but Luke 951 says when it was time John 12, when it was time for Jesus to be glorified, the Bible says he resolutely, like, like a purposed vision for the future, he resolutely set his face like flint, undeniable, irreversible, and he headed toward Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know why? Because it's time. What do you mean it's time? Well, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's prophecy of the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming one, the king, sent by God, deliver God's people, would come in the 69th week. There would be 62 weeks, seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, weeks of years, 
that would precede from the decree of Artaxerxes II, which sent God's people back to the land to rebuild it after they'd been exiled, sent off to Babylon, removed from the land. The prophet Daniel, as an encourager to God's people, there will be a decree. And 69 weeks of years, 483 years after 445 B.C., when that decree goes out, Messiah, the Prince, will come. If you had a calendar and could do the math, that week, those, that 483 years concludes this week. The reason it's time, the reason it's a go-now authoritative sovereign statement is because Jesus is not only in charge of those that follow him, he's in charge of the timing of everything about him. He's the decider of all history. Matter of fact, the reason we like Palm Monday rather than Palm Sunday is because according to Mosaic law, the lamb that would be sacrificed at Passover would be chosen on the 10th of Nisan, which is April 10th in our way of counting months and seasons. And on the 14th of Nisan, which would be Friday, Passover, the lamb would be sacrificed. Monday, the lamb is chosen. Friday, the lamb is sacrificed. The lamb is being presented to God's people as the potential choice, God's choice, for the solution of their real situation. So when we talk about Jesus presenting himself as a sovereign king, we talk about the master who says go, the master who says go now, who goes from don't tell, slipping away because they wanted to force him to be king, to saying right now is the time. Because it's the time. I'm in charge. Not only is his sovereignty revealed in the timing of these events, but what happens with these events, you will find a cult there. By the way, he's two miles out when he sends this message or sends dispatches these disciples. You're going to find a cult there. How's he, how's he, how's he going to know that? Not because he made prearrangements, because he's God sovereign and he knows everything. And beyond that, you're going to find a cult tied with its mother, a beast of burden. You're going to tell the owners when they ask, why are you doing this? The word for owner in Luke, parallel passage, Luke 19 is Lord. You tell the lords, the ones who own this animal and its mother, you tell them the Lord has need of it and they will release it because they understand authority. They own it, but I own them and I own what they own. I am not only sovereign over time, I'm not, over so not only sovereign over history, I am sovereign over everything. You may think you own it, but it's mine. The Lord has need of it. Here's a parenthetical for you. Everything you think you own, he owns. Everything you have belongs to him. He is sovereign over everything, and being sovereign is not only being authoritative over it, but being the owner of it. And then, he's the creator who made that cult. No one had ever sat on it. I, I didn't grow up with horses. I grew up across the street from horses. 
but I married a girl who loves horses. And I didn't read the fine print and found out 10 years into my marriage that I needed to provide her the opportunity to do that. I love her, she loves horses, that's how it works. Her first horse was an eight-month-old colt, which she named Malachi. No, not a donkey, a Morgan horse. We went up to pick this horse up in central Alabama, brought it home to our home outside of Birmingham. She was so excited. I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. I built a stable, put up fencing, found a place to get hay, and I was the ranch hand, and she was the queen of the ranch with one horse, an eight-month-old colt. First day I came home from work, I went outside to find Karen and her new horse, and do you know what I saw? I saw my wife with her new eight-month-old colt with a big pine tree, the colt on that side, and Karen doing this. And she was doing that because the horse wanted to make her understand he was the boss, she wasn't. He was going to do what he wanted to do, not what she wanted him to do. She could have said, well, hey, I'm the owner, but she knew real well that she couldn't make him do anything, and it was sad and funny all at the same time. <laughs> Here's my wife trying to get away from her new horse because she couldn't control her new horse. He had never been ridden. He had never been trained. Beloved, listen to me. Don't miss this. When he says, take this animal, this colt, who nobody has ever sat upon, he is not only saying, I'm the only one worthy, the first, the most, and the best, but I have the ability to do with my creation what nobody else can do. I can sit on it, I can ride it, because I'm authority, authoritative and sovereign over it. That's who I am. I'm the king of everything. I own everything. I control everything. I do it when I want, how I want, with anything I want. I'm the king, and I rule. And if you're going to receive me, and I would say to you, Master's College student, you're going to need to say to him, I get that. And I'm not just going to throw my cloak on the ground or my coat, which was a symbolic way of saying, we submit. The king is always higher. We submit to you. And when they bring out the big palm branches and they wave them and when they lay them on the ground, they are saying, you are our sovereign. Whatever you say, we will do. And they'll wave their branches and they'll sing the big praise songs. This is the Hillel. This is one of the favorite psalms when the children of Israel would ascend to the temple they would sing this song. This is Psalm 118. It's called the Conqueror Psalm. It's a victory song. It's a praise song. It's like victory in Jesus without the guitars and without the fiddle. It's, it's you're the king. You're the king. You have the ability to save us. And they wave branches and blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You're everything. You're God's king. You're the son of David. We're going to throw our coats down. We're going to wave our palm branches we're going to lift our loud voices because we're saying with our lips, you're the king. 
you know the tragedy of this story? Is everything they did after this event contradicted that claim. What it turned out to be was lip service lordship. What it turned out to be is temporary emotional worship. You know, the situation-based worship where God's really big and has the potential to do big things. It's like the spiritual pep rally. I don't know. I've been to some churches that feel like a spiritual pep rally where people get all worked up and everything is designed to call attention to the great things that God could do and everybody gets moved and mobilized and hands go up and voices get loud and instruments play louder and, and all of these people are big on praise but small on real worship. You see, this Hoffa, yes, he's worthy of big praise. But you know what he won't accept? Lips without heart. He won't accept raised hands without a submitted heart. He won't accept worship that's big on spiritual speak and low on spiritual submission. He's coming to town and he's saying, I'm the king and I'm sovereign over everything. Receive me for who I am. Honor me. Yield. Well, let me hustle with a couple of more thoughts for you and then we'll wrap this up. A real presentation as a sovereign king, but number two, a presentation as the promised king. The promised king who comes in peace for peace. Take your Bible, turn over to Matthew chapter 21. What kind of king is Jesus presenting? Matthew 21 tells us publicly, not what was behind the scenes in terms of his authority, but publicly with regard to his purpose and priority. Parallel passage, Matthew 21, reads this way, the divine commentator, now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Now, this is a 500-year-old prophecy from the book of Zechariah when God's people were beat down, everybody was at peace but them, and this is an encouraging promise offered be like us hearing at the time of Columbus somebody making a prediction about who will be our next president and how we'll recognize him. So 500 years in advance, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. How will you recognize him? He will be gentle and he will be mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, the whole impact is that this king who is presenting himself is coming on a beast of burden, an animal that a majesty would ride, offering peace, not war. I mean, there's an abundance of inscriptions and pictures and ancient literature and writings of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt where you have Sennacherib and Ramses and others on powerful war horses or hurtling chariots driving over their foes made prostrate. prostrate. They come in power. They come with weapons. They come victorious. He's not coming offering war. He's not coming to conquer the Roman oppressors. 
He is coming in peace to offer peace through the offering that will secure peace. As a matter of fact, Zechariah's prophecy says, Behold, your king is coming, and a line that Matthew doesn't include, he is just, that is righteous, and he is endowed with salvation. The one who is coming, the one who is coming as the prince of peace, the one who is coming as the king, is going to come on an animal that defines his kingship and his kingdom, its character, its nature, his and his way, as one of producing peace by way of the means of peace. Not the death of others, but his own death. Not the sacrifice of others, but his own sacrifice. He comes on the beast of burden because he will be, third thing, the sin bearer, the servant king who will bear the burdens of sinners. Can you hear Isaiah crying out, he will bear our iniquities. He bore in his own body, 1 Peter chapter 2, our sin, our iniquity. He carried our sorrow. The king is coming. The king who we're going to celebrate this week, the king who was being offered as the king, validated by this event, he had all of the trappings that verified he was who he said he was, but he wasn't coming the way they expected him to come. All of the songs of the day written by the writers who enjoyed thoughts of deliverance were songs of the king will smite them, the king will shatter them, the king will destroy them, he will reduce them to rubble. That was the favorite hits of that day written by the songwriters about what they wanted. And here he comes, not the king that they wanted, who would overcome and overrule the Romans, but the king who would come not in power, but in peace. And he wouldn't overrule the Romans, he would overrule sin and its power. And he would do that by bearing the burdens of sin for God's people. He's the servant king, not just the promised king. He's the burden bearer king. He's not only on a beast of burden, but that's a symbol of what he would become. The bearer of the iniquities of his people. He would bury and bear and carry their sorrows. He would be crushed for their iniquities. Beloved, listen, what Jesus was offering was a way to fix what needed most to be fixed. Not liberation from oppressors, but liberation from the inward power of sin and the destroyer of our soul. So here he comes, and he offers himself as a provider of peace by carrying the sins of the offender. And they miss the message. Turn over to Luke's Gospel, and I'll close with this. Luke 19. A third parallel passage. This is the sad expression. They had a superficial reaction, not because what they did was wrong, but what they did wasn't sustained. They weren't the rest of the weeks what they were that day. They weren't the rest of the week what they were that day. You know, that's pretty easy to make an application. Sometimes we worship God with big words like they did. And on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, we're contradicting every claim we make with our mouth and the worship that we express. So, 
Look at the sad expression. Verse 41, Luke 19. Here's how we're going to end this. The voices were lifted. Verse 39, the Pharisees rebuked, said to him, rebuke your disciples. We shouldn't be talking like this. He said, listen, if they weren't worshiping, even the rocks would worship because I am a king who is worthy of such worship. Verse 41, and when he approached, that's the city, when he approached and saw the city, he did what? He wept over it. This is the only other time besides John 11 where Jesus is weeping over the loss of sin in death. When, La- when he came to the tomb of Lazarus, he saw Mary and those mourning with her. And the Bible says, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Wept over what? The catastrophic loss brought about by sin. He's going to weep right here, not for a woman and her mourning family, but for an entire city. Went from the highest accolades of adoration and honor. Hosanna, save us now, save us now, save us now. You're really who you, you're you're the promised one. You're everything we want you to be. Do it now, do it now, do it now. He goes from we want you to we reject you, and he knows it's coming, so he weeps over the reality that they don't get who he is. They don't want who he presents himself to be. They are rejecting him. No, we don't want a sovereign. We want to throw our coats down, but we want, don't want to obey him. We don't want somebody who's going to come in peace. We want somebody who's going to overrule the enemy. We don't want somebody to bear our sin. We have no sin. These animals are symbolic, but we live as if we're self-righteous. And Jesus weeps. And you don't know why he weeps? Because they're saying, we're not going to receive you for who you are. And we're going to reject you because you're not who we want you to be. Notice what it says. Verse 42, Jesus said this, explaining his weeping. If you had known, which means you don't know, you don't get it. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But they've been hidden from your eyes. What makes for peace that they miss? What does it take to get what Jesus came to give? Can I boil it all down for you? You need to receive me for who I am. Not for who you want me to be. Remember John 1.12 after there's the description of the living word, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and he was with God and was God and the creator of everything and all life was in him. Remember it says, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. You know what receiving is? It's the means to knowing him and enjoying the peace that he brings. Take me for who I am. Submit to me. Entrust yourself to me. Receive me as the sin bearer. Recognize me as the peacemaker. Receive me. What hid that from them? I'm going to argue the blindness that comes from dysfunctional desires that try to construct a God of your own making instead of the God that is offered. You know, God, if you'll just deliver me, if you'll help me, if you'll fix this. 
mean, what's going to happen if the pages and their little girl, if things happen in ways that they don't want, if the big God that we worship doesn't do what the big God can do, what do we do then? We do what people do who receive him for who he is. I'm ruling. And the acid test of your faith is the evidence that you will submit when it's not what you want it to be because he is who he claims to be. The acid test of your faith is when you worship him with big praise because you get what he's done for you, what he wants to do for you, and how he will do it for you. The acid test of the triumphant entry and the receiving of this king is what you do not on Monday at chapel or Wednesday at chapel or Sunday at worship. It's what you do the rest of your days that says, I've received him. I'm going to live for him. Don't miss the message. Jesus has wept over the tragedy of loss and the tragedy he foretells because they miss the day of visitation. Because when the temple will get leveled, Titus will come with his big Roman armies. He'll build a big bank of a wall, like an earthen wall. He will starve the people. He will level the city. Three towers, Josephus will remain standing in A.D. 70. Everything will go away because they didn't receive him. They rejected him. He weeps because he knows the tragic, catastrophic loss that comes to anybody, not just a city, not just a nation, but to the person. He says, no, I want it the way I don't let that happen to you. Father, thank you this morning for the privilege of preaching. Thank you for your word and its clarity. I pray that you will sow like seed in the hearts of my master's family the truth that you are who you claim to be. You do what you claim to do. You have provided us eternal life through your sacrifice. You're alive from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our praise and honor. Lord, help us to not miss that message. In the midst of all of the religious hoopla, here we are at a college where everything is so focused on truth. God forbid that we would miss the main thing because we're caught up in all of the trappings that surround it. You're the greatest and the best, and to that end I ask it for God's glory and the salvation of your people. In Jesus' name.